And we're finishing tonight. Well, actually, we're not. We're on part four of a series, Atheists Are Made, Not Born. The Biblical Psychology of Modern Atheism. I have several texts that I want to read around the idea the unspoken myth surrounding atheism is they are honest seekers of God who just can't find him. And the starting place of divine revelation as we have it in God's word is that that's not true. And you have to decide what camp you're putting your foot in. The blunt truth of the scriptures is that people who reject the gospel, the good news that God the Son died on the cross, rose from the dead to provide pardon and redemption for sinful humanity, The biblical revelation is that people who reject that, though they might be very nice people, are enemies of God. And I certainly wouldn't ask you to take my word for that. I have a number of texts that I want to read. Most of them, I think, are in those notes that you have. Is it bright enough for you to see them? You're all right? How many find it dark? How many find it just right? Okay, that's good. Romans chapter 1, starting at 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Those are the important words. Suppress the truth. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now look at these verses quickly. Romans 5.10. For if... While we were enemies, that's the word I want to hit on. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, 
Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. See, enemies, hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Colossians 1.21. And you, he writes to the church, who once were alienated and hostile in mind. Enemies, hostile, hostile in mind. Doing evil deeds. James 4.4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? See, enemies, enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The first thing, I guess, to say about all those verses is they describe all people outside of faith in Christ. So, so this is not, when I read those words, hostile, hostile in mind, enemies of God, enmity with God. This is not the Bible's picture of a handful of really bad people, child molesters, Nazi war criminals, mafia drug lords. When the Bible uses that language, and you can see it in the context of the verses, this is a description of the common moral position of this world. People who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And so immediately what we all know is these are not, these are not politically correct verses. They don't fit well on a university campus. These words feel intolerant. They feel inappropriate. They contradict almost everything we hear today about what has to be a really large portion of the population of our planet. Even in the church, the common understanding in much of the church today is that this world isn't happy with the church, and that's the church's fault. We Christians have been too obsessed with, with sin and God's wrath and damnation to the point that those outside the church, so we're told, can't even relate to us. So the church is just, it's too prickly, it's too judgmental, it's, it's too dogmatic about these things to even appeal to those who don't yet embrace Christ. The unbelieving world, in popular, even Christian perception, the unbelieving world is full of relatively beautiful people. It's full of seekers. So we have seeker-sensitive church. When's the last time you drove by a church and saw that it was an enemy-sensitive church? Well, we don't think of people like that. They're seekers. 
It's full of seekers who just need, they just need a little more information, a little more love, and if we insiders would just learn to speak their language and show more love, they will gladly embrace Jesus. They just need a bit of a hand up from a culturally relevant church. And there are millions of Christians who believe what I just said. So you can't help but sense, whatever camp you're in, you you can't help but sense that there's this huge fork in the road. I mean, no one can ignore the huge discrepancy between these two viewpoints, these two pictures of the lost. If the lost are just basically beautiful people seeking God, then Paul and the rest of the New Testament are just out to lunch. And if the New Testament picture, framed in all those opening verses, if that's really true and accurate, then the church needs to adjust its thinking around its approach to evangelism. But either way, this is too big an issue to ignore. Four questions seem unavoidable, and I want to look at them. Question number one. Are those outside of Christ really enemies of God? Question number two. If they are, do they know they're God's enemies? Question number three. Flip over the sheet, I guess. How does this latent enmity... How does it manifest itself? If these people are enemies of God, how is that revealed? And four, what can be done about this problem in view of the church's call to reach the lost? I think those are four really important questions that every Christian ought to be able to answer. That's where we're going tonight, okay? Question number one, and it's point number one. Are those outside of Christ really enemies of God? And I don't want you to miss the meaning here. There there is no question from God's side about his desire to reach everyone. He sent the Son to die on the cross for everyone. So God's loving reach to everyone isn't at issue here. The Bible is just too clear and too blunt to miss this. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. He's talking about the second coming now. Jesus coming again. As some count slowness. But is patient toward you. These are people that mock the idea of Jesus coming again. God's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. How many people does God desire to perish? Zero is the only acceptable answer. At the deepest level of his being, this is not some light whoosh of God contrary to his sovereign will. There aren't these two wills. God's deepest desire to reach everyone, that none should perish, that all should reach repentance. 
1 John 2, 2, he, that's Jesus and his death on the cross. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only. That's those in the church. But for the sins of the whole world. They're not all saved, of course. But Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. So, all I'm saying is there's no mistake in God's heart here. John equates the reach of the atoning work of Christ for Christians, our sins, not just for our sins. He equates that with everyone else on the planet, the sins of the whole world. God wants no one to perish. God wants everyone to repent. That's why he sent his son to die for the whole world's sin. So God is out to reach his enemies. No question about that. But that doesn't undo the fact that they are repeatedly and consistently called his enemies throughout the New Testament. Nobody talks about it much. So let's start with some basics. When the New Testament repeatedly calls those outside of Christ God's enemies, it does not mean that they can't be very nice persons. So in other words, their enmity is directed directly to God, not the world in general. And so what that means is they exhibit love in many other relationships. They may be good parents. They may be good neighbors. They might be compassionate to the poor. They give blood to the Red Cross, money to the United Way. They have children that they sponsor overseas. They work in soup kitchens. They are only enemies of God. In other words, we aren't in a position to see anything unlovely in them the way God would see what's unlovely in them because they're enmity is directed at God, not at us. They can be loving toward us, gracious toward us, kind toward us, nice toward us. We don't feel their enmity. They're enemies of God, not enemies of culture, not enemies of their neighbors, not enemies of society, not enemies of schools, not enemies of doctors, not enemies of friends, enemies of God. Our opening text just could not be clearer. You have to decide. You have to decide what you're going to do with your Bible. You have to decide what you're going to do with your Bible when it says things you're uncomfortable with. Uh, the basic default stance of the worldly mind and its key problem in relation to God, it isn't just one of ignorance. That's what many would have you believe. But it isn't ignorance that's the problem. Look at that Romans 1 reference again, 18, 20, 28. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's not the same as not knowing the truth. This is truth they don't want to face. I'll talk about why in, in a minute. Look at verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they 
They are without excuse. They suppress the truth. They are without excuse. 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. So, suppress the truth, without excuse, didn't see fit to acknowledge God. So the problem here with these enemies of God is one of suppression of truth that they know. That's why Paul speaks of this great exchange that they willingly made. 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. That's that's the work of enemies. There has been a denial of God's rights. There has been a declaration of opposing loyalties, an exchange of love, an exchange of devotion. There's been this deliberate refusal to bow and worship. There's been the replacement of proper devotion to the Creator with nothing but self-love, self-worship, self-exaltation, self-acquisition, self-security, self-happiness, self-promotion. This is our world. 50,000 crammed into the temple called Rogers Center. Most of our resources devoted to a ridiculously sinful amount of self-indulgence. A whole generation who knows more about the Kardashians than the New Testament account of Jesus Christ. Now, without divine revelation, without God's word, we simply have no way of knowing that this isn't just normal life, because it seems just like normal life. The fact that so many don't see anything offensive in any of these choices is only further evidence of the the depth of the blindness, the suppression of truth, the rebellion. Just just in exactly the same way the American South went so many years seeing nothing morally offensive about slavery, our world sees nothing morally offensive about not reverently honoring God above all else. It doesn't feel that bad. It's normal. We don't have the capacity at all to see the sinister underbelly of these horribly misdirected passions. So our opening texts, I took time to read them all, our opening texts are the only source we have for an honest perspective on why this situation exists. It isn't accidental. It has ugly usually unconsidered roots. So, question number two then, do all these people know they're enemies of God? And I'm going to say I believe at some point they do, but only for a while. Only for a while. Consider these words from Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus speaks about a time when the nations 
will all stand before him. He's coming back. And the nations will all stand before him. You'll be there. I will be there. You may miss a lot of appointments in life. You will not miss this one. And Jesus talks about the assessment that will be made. I don't know how it will be made, but of all of our lives. And here's what Jesus says, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, we're gonna, you're gonna, we'll talk to Jesus. We will speak. And many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Every once in a while, someone will come up, and they'll talk to me or I'll be in my office and We'll be talking about something in their life and something they know isn't quite right. And they'll say, you know, I, I, I need you to know, Pastor Don, I feel absolutely fine about my relationship with Jesus. And they're usually surprised when I say, I couldn't care less how you feel about your relationship with Jesus. How you feel about Jesus is absolutely irrelevant. The only thing that really matters is how does Jesus feel about you? I mean, that's what counts, Right? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't we do that? I'm sorry. I never knew you. You thought you knew me. I never knew you. I, I don't think, I don't think these people were aware of their unrelatedness to the Lord. It just seems to me, when you read those words at face value, it seems to me they were expecting a warmer response than they actually received. I mean, I can't prove it from the text, but it it certainly looks like that. They seem genuinely shocked to be left on the outside. And so, this text reveals uh, a kind of unawareness of their actual condition. But that's as far as we can follow this account. We're we're told nothing about how these people got to this place of confusion and lostness. Jesus doesn't tell us that. We know that these people hadn't constructed their whole lives around devotion to the lordship of Jesus. Jesus makes that clear in verses 24, 25, 26, and 27. But as to how these people came to this position of confusion and self-delusion, we don't know from those words. We need another text to explain that to us. And fortunately, we have one. That's in Romans 1, 18 to 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Goes on to talk about his, his divine attributes in creation. So they are, end of verse 20, without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but became, that's the verb, became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts, it says, were darkened. So what we learn here is that lesser truth, humbly received, makes room for greater truth. But lesser common, conscience-revealed truths that aren't welcomed results in even the knowledge of those truths being taken away. Or, if you want Bible words, Luke 8, 18, take care then how you hear, for the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So, do enemies of God know they're his enemies? I think at first, I think at first, but as you resist that and as you suppress that, you, it's easy, isn't it? You turn your attention to other things, then that, that enmity, that broken relationship, it just kind of recedes into the background. It's just background noise in your life, and you don't feel it anymore. So the third question is, how do enemies of God reveal this condition? There are two manifestations. One, we're looking at tonight, and then I'm going to say one of the most important messages I've ever preached in this church. I'm not saying I'll do a good job, but the topic is important. I'm going to finish this series with the other manifestation next Sunday morning. I'm going to do it in the morning. So... How do enemies of God reveal this condition? In two ways, we're just looking at one now. In Romans 1, 21 to 23, although they knew God, they did not honor, honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became, see the process? They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise. By the way, that doesn't mean standing up and saying, look at me, I'm brilliant, I'm so brilliant, I'm the wisest person in the world, look how brilliant I am. That's not what that means. Claiming to be wise means there's, there's, there's what I know God is saying, but it doesn't seem to fit my life right now as well as this. It's, it's just that just that self-assertion. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and Ferraris and, 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 and all sorts of material things. So, how is enmity toward God manifested the first way he talks about is God is replaced. Not rejected. Replaced. 
You see, people cannot live without expressing devotion. It's part of the image of God that remains in all of us, even through the fall. Everyone on this planet is a worshiper. We, we fix our affection on things. We cannot do otherwise. People can't live without expressing devotion. It's the way our Creator has made us. So, the common manifestation of enmity toward God is this. Misdirected love. And the text leaves us no doubt as to where God's enemies find their deepest joy. The divine is removed, the material, the human, the earthly is exalted. So, Claiming to be wise, verse 22. There's no, there's no humility here. Human wisdom. The, listen, the cultural perspective. The dominant cultural voice is received in place of God's revelation. The dominant cultural voice is received in place of divine revelation. So, tolerance trumps holiness and the absolute rights of our sovereign creator. We are more troubled about the feelings of others than about grieving God. However you cut it, enemies of God are more transfixed by what they can embrace resembling mortal man, 23. We we worship what is like us, what fits to us. Enemies of God worship what exalts and pleases and delights and secures and fascinates themselves. And I just need to add one more point. Really important words are found in Matthew 6.24. Now remember, how do enemies of God reveal their condition. I said there were two ways, and the one that we're looking at now is they replace God with other objects of devotion. That's that's where we are. And under that idea, look at Matthew 6, 24. Jesus is the speaker here. And he says, no one. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. I don't think anyone should read that verse without asking the question, why not? I think Jesus means for us to ask that question. Why not? Why can't I love one master more and just love another master less? Does that seem that unreasonable to you? Why can't I love master number one this much and and some other master this much? Because... Because the words of Jesus don't leave that as an option. He says, impossible. But it doesn't seem like it's impossible. It seems like people do it all the time. You have six kids. Which ones do you love more? Well, you love this one, you love this one, you love this one, you love that one. 
It doesn't seem like an unreasonable question. Why can't I love one master the most and another master slightly less? And, and Jesus is adamant. When God is placed on the balance of the heart's devotion, he is automatically hated or despised when he is compared with anything else. I want to talk about that for a minute. Notice, enemies of God aren't created by hating God directly. That's important. Enemies of God are not created by hating God directly. Not many people do that. Enemies of God are spontaneously created by affection toward other interests. And what that means is, very few people constantly feel like they're enemies of God. And that's because their enmity against God only arises when he, when he challenges something else they hold dear. And God will always challenge whatever we love most. Always. So God is not an apparent enemy in the worship service. He's not an apparent enemy at grace at the family dinner. He's not an apparent enemy when people go to him, even unbelievers, in some kind of time of emergency. But, but none of those times reveal my true relationship with God. That I am God's enemy will only surface to full awareness when there's an actual comparison of my devotion to him with my devotion to something else desperately important to me, and he challenges. So in other words, Jesus is reminding us in those words that no one merely dabbles with either love for God or love of self. Each love draws. Each love consumes. That's the nature of love. It's not static. It grows. It, it dominates. It's like two gigantic magnets. Each one pulls you more and more toward itself. It's impossible just to stay in the middle between two masters. Jesus says you can't do it. Jesus' words... In Matthew 6, 24, they need to be heard with faith that they are true. That's because, because we all think we are safer with some devotion to this world than we really are. It, it never dawns on us until too late that there's no such thing as dating the world and being married to Christ. That's why James 4, 4, you adulteress. Why does he pick that word? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When he says adulterous people, so, so I'm, I'm married to my wife. Am I less 
Am I less an adulterer because I say, sure, I've, I've slept with a lot of other women, but sweetie, I don't love any of them like I love you. Is she going to be happy with that explanation? Why not? Because love is consuming, right? And that's why James says, if, 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 if you think you're going to love God and, and you're going to adopt the values, the mentality of the dominant cultural view that you're in, and, but you'll keep going to church and you carry your Bible. And James says, you, you need to know that you're an adulterer. That it only takes one affair to make you an adulterer. That the only way of avoiding being an adulterer or an adulteress is exclusive devotion to the one. Friendship with the world is enmity. Makes you an enemy of God. That's just what friendship with this world is. Like two and two is four. Last point. If this is true, what should be the church's message to this world? And so here we are. Are people going to like hearing this from us? That's a pretty good question. Wouldn't we have more success? Let's just not talk about this part of the New Testament revelation. Or let's not show them that until after we've got them into the church. And we'll tell them about this later. Surely no no one's going to feel very flattered being called an enemy of God. Maybe the Bible can share some light on this complicated issue. I think it can. Look at Romans 5, verses 8 through 11. Paul is explaining the process of salvation. People moving from being enemies of God to being children of God. And he says this, Romans 5, 8. You have to jump into the middle of a thought. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood... Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And then, and then these important words. For if, if while we were enemies, there's the E word. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, We shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Don't miss what Paul does. He says this. You can put your notes away. I'm not using them anymore. If you want to show people the marvel of the gospel, they won't see it unless they know 
that God reaches out to them while they're his enemies. And if you don't tell them that, then the much more of all that God still wants to do for them is never going to shine as brightly as God wants it to shine. Because the argument of the text is this. While Don Horbin was an enemy of God, Jesus came and died on the cross for Don Horbin. Okay? And then his argument is, Don, if that's what God does while you're his enemy, think of your future and eternal life and imagine what God has in store for you now that you're one of his children. It's, it moves from this to much more. But if you take this away, we're enemies. The much more doesn't sparkle. It doesn't shine. If you want to have people see the magnitude of the cross, if you want them to see grace as amazing grace, if you want them to be stunned by it, that they call out to God with gratitude and wonder and marvel, make sure you see that the gospel doesn't just come and tinker with a few sins they may have committed. Make sure they understand that it takes enemies and makes them children through the wonder of the cross. And that is a message big enough for the world. Let's pray.